five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. You're listening to Tabletop and Beyond with your host, Justin. But before we get started, how was your geek week? And co-hosts, Dan and Jason. You have to be willing to let the dice help you tell the story. Okay, look, this year, I'm going to stop mispronouncing words. Join us as we cover board games to war games and beyond. And welcome back to Tabletop and Beyond. This is the Talking Warhammer segment. I am very excited to welcome to the show today, Phil Marsh. Phil, welcome to the show. Hi, yeah. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm looking forward to uh, talking all things Age of Sigma. <laughs> oh, it's uh, it's great to have you. I know that uh, it's been a little bit to try to try to get you on the show, but uh, I'm very excited here. You're just coming off of uh, not only winning the u.s open here in new mexico recently at the end of november but i believe that you also had some uh some six nations games that uh, you had under your belt right yeah that's correct um the week after new mexico flew to belfast with england and um yeah we won six nations and personally went five and oh which was quite nice on my debut appearance that is great. That's great to hear, and I definitely want to get into that a little bit more after we talk about some of your um, U.S. Open stuff. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, you're, you know, you're kind of probably a little bit of an enigma to most of our listeners who are here, based in the United States. Uh, you know, we've got some of our big names that we follow here, but uh, you come in here to the U.S. Open and and winning. I think uh, for those people who are not familiar with Team England. Or, you know, the English meta, like, that was a bit of a surprise. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself. You, you told me earlier before the show you play Age of Sigmar pretty much every day. Yeah, so, um, I guess an enigma is right. Um, I, <laughs> I, I only really started playing competitively in September, September of last year. So, coming out of COVID, I decided I was going to really grab the ball by the horns and play as many events as possible um, so I think last season I ended up playing nearly 30 events um, of which I had 25 four, four and ones or better in a row wow like exclusively playing Slaves to Darkness um, and then yeah so off the back end of that season I decided to um, apply for England um, which ultimately obviously got into based on what I've told you a little bit before this um, yeah um, but in the lead up to that I decided to show a bit of versatility and play play some different armies so I had five events back to back where I took different things and I, I went four and one with them all um, and as soon as I found out I was Selected by England, um, I decided I'm going to go back home to Slaves of Darkness, and um, I've kind of kind of not looked back since. So I obviously took them to the U.S. Open um, and showed the American meta what um, old Knights of the Empty Throne was all about, which was 
pretty exciting and quite a lot of people weren't prepared for it which was handy for me Oh, for sure. I uh, I was kind of following along, and I said, who is this guy that is winning with Slaves of Darkness? And at first I was like, oh, wow, it's because there's a new book, you know, obviously. But then I realized they didn't allow the new book there for the U.S. Open, and so you were doing it with Old Slaves to Darkness, which is quite a feat in itself. I mean, it's uh, it's pretty amazing. So um, we'll get into we'll get into a little bit of that. I wanted to dive in. I want to kind of dig into some of your matches that you had there, and uh, some of the tournament format. But before we really get started there, how what what how's your hobby table? Um, my hobby table has probably an equal amount of pile of shame as every other hobbyist. <laughs> Currently, I'm getting all prepared for the um, new Slaves of Darkness release, so I've got 30 Chosen on my desk, I've got 10 Knights, um, Sigvald as well for a little bit of Secret Spice. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, well, and 70 Splintered Fang, which I think everyone is going to hate me for, but um, you got to do what you got to do to take out events. It's uh, it's funny because some of those warband uh, uh, groups, you know, or you know, I guess I guess you call them warbands or, or Warcry warbands, right? That are used in in uh, Slave to Darkness armies. Uh, they're actually pretty good. They got some sneaky things about them. Yeah, there's a uh, a lot of them have, have had a really good glow up in in the new book. Um, so like Corvus Cabal, really good. Um, for the ability to start off the board and deep strike in, um, so it's handy for scoring battle tactics. Um, I really like the unmade. Um, I think a few people have looked past them at the moment, but they turn off uh, redeploy and rally within 12. Wow. So in a chosen heavy list where it's all about foot slogging down the table, um, to stop them redeploying is going to be really beneficial. Yeah, I, I lost a Nova Open game uh, directly to one redeploy. You know, like they, <laughs> they I was outside of three. I had uh, I had my um, um, Dread Scythe Herodons. I was playing Night Hunt. I was outside of three. They redeployed four inches, and I rolled a six on both of my charges. And so, you know, I was one inch shy for both of those and because of that like uh i didn't get into where i needed to be in and that was the end of the game you know oh it was it was i'm like these stupid redeploys so um having an unmade's awesome but uh yeah so that sounds like a lot of stuff i also have splintered fang unmade uh let's see the um which other ones do i have I pretty much have all of the war bands. Uh, let's see, Dark Oath, uh, Tarantula's Brood. I, I have all of them that really need to be painted, and part of that is because um, I am very much into Warcry, so I play Warcry quite a bit. And in fact, I was the tournament organizer for the Nova Open for Warcry. So, yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's better models in the hobby, really, from an aesthetic point of view. Um, yeah. they're all really unique great fun to paint and like I say the the fact that they all have 
pretty decent rules now and that hopefully you'll see a lot more of them on the tabletop opposed to just iron golems and the un, untamed beasts yeah definitely i uh especially i mean the untamed beasts i know in the in the old book had their kind of redeploy or um i guess it was pre-game movement that that helped them i don't know if they still have that in the new book but um but it's okay cool yeah it's still interesting to see how um how the uh the from a war cry community standpoint how you know you've got the slave to darkness army guys and we're all talking about the same models which is kind of cool <laughs> you know so yeah that's pretty awesome pretty awesome uh yeah well that's that's very cool i i the, some of the new slave to darkness models especially like the chaos knights and things like that were so amazing and um I mean, we got previews of the, uh, I guess it was about this time last year that we got the new um, Chaos Warriors, is that right? Uh, so they were in the start collecting box set. The only downside of yeah. that is you have no command sprues for either the knights or the warriors. Oh. So um, having to wait for the release from Games Workshop to have your horn blowers and your banner bearers, etc., without uh, having to do any conversions. Um, yeah. So hopefully they'll come out with the release of the Battle Tome, which I'm hoping is before LVO, because um, I want to I wanna be able to take the, the biggest filth possible. <laughs> awesome. Now, um, do you often come to the United States to play? Um, don't often come to play, um, however, I think I've kind of decided I want to come to one event a year in the, in the US. Um, after New Mexico and everything, it was it was just a really cool experience to meet all the guys that I interact with on Twitter, like Gavin, Emma, Tom, um, to meet the Walters brothers as well was pretty cool, both really, really sound individuals. Um, yeah, so just to really meet everyone on the scene and yeah, I guess, like I say, the, the AOS community itself is probably quite small in comparison to other, like, 40k, etc. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a lot more close-knit, so when you have people being successful in the UK or the US or in Norway, everyone usually um, gets together and has conversations about what you're doing well and what they're doing well. Um, and it's really beneficial to be able to speak to everyone and there's no and there's like that common ground of um, we all love this hobby and we want to make it better so how do we make other people better around us yeah I you know it's interesting every guest that I've had on here has basically said the same thing about Age of Sigmar which is the community is its biggest strength you know in terms of in terms of the game because you kind of look across the across the way at 40k and you i i haven't really played i've played a little i dabbled a little bit in 40k when ninth edition dropped um but you know you kind of look across you, you, you hear tape you hear stories of like um you know the toxic community that they have sometimes the competitiveness that that happens and and I'm like, I just don't feel that about Age of Sigmar at all. And in fact, my experience has been similar to what you have 
explain, which is, hey, we're out here to play a competitive game and we very much enjoy doing it. But at the end of the day, like we have a great time doing it. And if we can help each other be better, that just makes the game as a whole better. Yeah, 100%. Um, I also feel that when you're playing at events, your most relaxing games are the games at the top end of the room because, like I like I alluded to, you have this mutual respect where you both understand the game really well, um, and you're both both aware of each other's capabilities, and you know they're not going to try and be gamey or. Um, get salty over certain things because we've all played yeah. this game to such a high level for such a well I say a long period of time I've only been around for 15 months but I've been consistent with it um, whereas when you're battling it out with the guys in the middle tables that are pushing for their first 3 and 2 or their first 4 and 1 they're the games where you tend to find there's a lot more pressure or eagerness from your opponent to try and get that win whereas like when you're playing against other people that are anticipating to take the event out it's quite a relaxed game um, and it's like we have a big thing in the UK with playing by intent so like if I'm saying I'm going to I'm out, my intent is to stay outside of 30 um, my yeah. opponent unless it looks like I'm 12 inches away, it's going to be like, yeah, that's fine. Um, yeah. My intent is outside of nine to stop you redeploying. Whereas um, some people, and you explain this all before the game, so like, yeah. and then your opponent will actually go, like, are you wanting to stay outside of nine just so that they don't have a gotcha on you when it clearly yeah. looks like you're nine away? Whereas other players would be like as soon as you finish that one move and you're eight and a half inches away they're like oh I'm going to redeploy you're like okay that's, that, that's, that's the type of game we're going to play so yeah, that's fine you know it, it's interesting you say that because um, I would say that that is very prevalent with our best players that are out here uh, you know you talk about the Walters brothers um, you know not only have both of them been on this show uh, but they kind of live not too far away from me, and I'm in a chat thread with them, and, and uh, you know, they're always a pleasure to play with. Um, and they're the, they're the same kind of guys, right? You're like, hey, I want to stay out of, you know, I'm, I'm just moving my guys out of three right here. And it might be like 2.75 or something like that, you know, but they're like, okay, I get it, you're out of three, you know, or, or um, just, just like what you were saying. And so it, it's interesting because it seems like the more confident players that we have here in the U S like the more that we see a lot of that similar, I guess, sportsmanship is sort of the, the thing that I would call it, you know, where, where it's like a mutual respect thing. I get what you're trying to do. I'm not trying to like play gotcha here. Um, it seems like it's the, maybe some of the newer players that are trying to, you know, like you said, that those those middle tables where they're trying to get to that four and one or whatever, that um, maybe they're a little, um, they're a little tense because it's you know kind of a nerve wracking moment for them, so that they're you know a little uptight about it. But yeah, no, exactly. Um, and like I said, I had, had the pleasure of playing Scooter, and um, he's an absolute hero to play against across the tabletop. Um, yeah. He also has this amazing personality that just 
takes all stress away from you when you're playing against him just because of the way he conducts himself at a table which is amazing um, but yeah like I say you get you get the people that are striving for their first four and one that you, they they put they almost put too much pressure on themselves and then they react badly when things don't go their way uh yeah unfortunately unfortunately because they like you said, I think that's perfectly summarized they put too much pressure on themselves uh because you know they what they want it to be like to work out for them and they you know they've planned and they've played and they've practiced and if it's not going that way then sometimes there's some negative feelings that come up right so um yeah it's a it's a very interesting uh to to see that way now uh you have been playing for 15 months and uh you're absolutely crushing it I do have to ask, how did you get to this point? I mean, I've been playing for a couple of years, I but I don't think I've been playing nearly as much as you. I, I'm, I'm a dad, I'm kind of busy, and uh, I try to get games in where I can. But um, how did you get to the point from, like, picking up, you know, your first models to 15 months later, like, winning the the U.S. Open? Um, so I guess, like I say, I... Uh competitively started 15 months ago I kind of got I kind of got back into the hobby during COVID I guess um, my brother was home from the military uh, I was working from home so we were like Sh should we try Age of Sigmar should we get back into Warhammer have something to do um, that ended up with buying probably 10 armies between us during a during COVID um yeah, because you don't need money. I mean, what is money, right? We could, you couldn't go anywhere during COVID, so it was yeah, like, yeah. well, I've, I've always been terrible for saving money, and it's always been a case of, oh, let's let's buy the new shiny thing. So, um, I then saw the Archeon model was instantly sold, and um, yeah, so we we played an awful lot during COVID, but not necessarily at the high end level that I'm now playing at but more lear learning the grass of the game. Um, and then, yeah, started... I then went to my first tournament in September of last year. Um, I was a horrible person that took 60 Sentinels. Um, and uh, I went 3-2, and two, really got a bug for it. Um, and then, yeah, like I said, did probably about 32-day events in the last 15 months of which um, I've only gone four and one and better um, which um, ultimately I'll put down to finding the club that I play for in Lance and Buckler um, they've got, we've got quite a lot of good players and I've kind of learned the hard way um, uh, one of the regular people that I play is Laurie Huggett Wild who ex-captain of England, current player of England, and he, he really knows his stuff. So to get in lots of games with him on a regular basis really elevated my play style. Um, and then, I, like I say, I probably, I probably play 67 games a week. So I'm getting in as many reps as possible, really learning the minutia of the way my army wants to play but that also allowed me to understand the way I like to play so 
Um, I guess in the UK you have two Slaves to Darkness players really in myself and Toby Meadows who obviously both play for England both been really successful with them um, but we play very differently um, he likes to be a lot more reserved and play on the counter attack whereas I like to go in smash face and force my opponent to make decisions that they didn't really want to have to make um, so yeah just finding that play style that suited me and Archeon really played into that so yeah I, I used and abused Archeon for, for the best part of a year which ultimately led me getting into England got me Archeon got me invited to New Mexico um, because of my results with him at the LGT um, which ironically if I knew qualifying from the LGT would get me a place at New Mexico I probably wouldn't have taken Archeon because I don't think he's the best list but he's the list I enjoy the most um, but but um, he got me there and then I didn't take him I took I took something else so um, I wasn't going to travel 27 hours not to try and win the event right uh, yeah definitely uh, there's two things that you said in there that I kind of want to pick up on um, the first is that I, I, I kind of feel like it's the importance of of a good mentor, right? Uh, having like better players teach you the game regularly. Um, I know that I I benefited myself from being able to play with some pretty high level players. Uh, Nate Trentinelli, Matt Barker, uh, James O'Brien. Uh, you know, like I've played against the Walters brothers regularly, so like that has helped me. Um, play against this, you know, these top level players, and it's kind of like um, iron sharpens iron, you know, in 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 that sense. Um, so I I can't help but think that that was a, you know, as you as you mentioned, that's a major part of uh, of of success that you have when you're when you get to play against, you know, a former captain of Team England, right? Yeah, massively. Um, you. I always say to my friends that I play regularly, you only learn by losing. And mm-hmm. I I got smashed a lot playing against Laurie when I was first learning to play competitively. Because um, there's just playing Warhammer and then there's playing competitive Warhammer, which you soon realise it isn't about killing stuff, it's about the movement phase. Um, and that is the biggest That's thing. Yeah. Um, and that's the biggest thing that I took away from him whereas back when I was first starting out I was so focused on smashing people off the table without really playing the primary Um, and then having played and lost a lot when I've noticed that my army's not really been picked apart too much um, it gave me a much different outlook on the the way the game is intended to be played Um, but then, equally, I played a list that allowed me to do both, um, which kept my interest, which is why I probably played the same list for as long as I did. Um, because, obviously, Archeon's command ability that used to be able to do every turn, which was to look into the future and see who had priority, would allow you to go for that double turn where you know you can lift the army as well as playing the mission. Um, was hugely beneficial for me Um, it did mean after that year of playing him religiously I had to learn Warhammer again because um, 
when when you when you have to then roll for priority without knowing the outcome, um, it, it can be a bit more dicey. <laughs> literally, literally dicey. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely. And you know, when when you play with uh, some of those really good players, the best moments are after you got smashed and you say, "What did I do wrong?" And they say, "Well, we're going to tell you." You know, here's 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 what you did wrong, and and here's like what you could have done better that would have you know caused different outcomes. And so, usually those you know post game discussions I'd have with some of these players uh, is where I really learned how to play um, Warhammer. It was not actually in rolling the dice; it was afterwards, like kind of breaking down the you know the 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 movements that I did and I say movements because that was almost entirely like where I made mistakes was in the movement phase yeah yeah no totally we that's I'd say that's the biggest part of post game at every game that we play whether it's at an event at club um we even have club games where we just say look we're going to play with an open book and we're going to walk through each player's turn with the most optimized way of doing it for for the both of us to really see how that mission should go from like the epitome of competitiveness of all the right decisions being made and just seeing how that then unfolds um which is particularly beneficial when you're playing like team warhammer on the international stage um because you're not coming up against your average joes you're honestly coming up against for the most part the eight best players for that country so you have to assume that when you're doing your matchups and you're doing your pairings that they are going to make every right decision so to be able to walk through that in preparation and seeing that the ins and the outs that you have against that um, is great to do especially when you've got equally good players to play test with um, back home so yeah we do like I say we do it after games if you just want to have a real slugfest and play it competitively without any information but we also play games where like I say it's an open book so you're asking for opinions as you're playing out your turns and they're giving you insights as to what they think the optimal play is etc which is also it's a very different way of playing and for a lot of competitive war gamers, everyone likes to win. So when you're having to tell your opponent how they win, it, it it's all fun and games for the first few turns, and then it it gets a bit spicy at the back end of the game. <laughs> right, right. Um, the uh, the other thing that I wanted to pick up on was that you said that you needed to find what your play style was, and I think that that's such a an insightful comment there because folks just say oh I'm, I'm you know I'm, I'm gonna pick up this army I'm gonna learn how to play it and then I'm gonna go and do it and uh, it's interesting because that's not necessarily learning your like if that army fits your play style and how you like to do things and I you know I'm bringing up the Walters brothers again but you've got scooter and you've got Caleb and those two play very very differently and they've both been playing their armies for a long time, and they just know that that is their play style, right? Scooter loves to smash and bash, and Caleb loves to kind of sit back and blast you with magic and kind of castle up a little bit. And so um, learning that uh, is, is, I think, is very important. For example, I 
um, played Night Haunt. That was my first army that I did. And then after LVO 2020, um, during, kind of during the pandemic, I said, okay, I'm going to um, switch to a new army. I've been playing this for a couple of years. Let me, let me switch to a new army and learn it. And I switched to Orcs um, back then, which was great. And I, But it took me a lot of relearning. And I started playing the orcs like Night Haunt. I was being really cagey with them and, you know, trying to kind of like keep them out of combat, which was like entirely the wrong way to play that army, <laughs> you know? So, but that was, I was trying to like change my play style because I had just gotten so used to it. So my question to you is, you know, when you're first starting out, and you choose an army like kind of like does the army choose you in terms of your play style or do you choose the army in ter terms of your play style like you know is it the chicken or the egg um i guess for me it's probably well it's, i'm gonna this can sound like i'm sitting on the fence um it's a bit of both like aesthetically i have to like the look of the army if i'm gonna play it however um it has to be able to do what I want it to do on a tabletop as well. So it might, you might have the nicest looking army in the game, but it's a really um, reactive army opposed to proactive. Um, and it would probably mean I wouldn't pick it up um, because I wouldn't enjoy the way that I have to sit and castle and wait for it to play. Like I played Thunder Lizard at one event with barely any practice games, went 5-0, and oh, and said it was the worst weekend of my life. Like I didn't enjoy the way it played at all. Um, because it was so reactive and you just sat in this little castle and if your opponent made one or two mistakes, it was game over. Whereas I prefer an army which I can put on a tabletop, know that I'm going to get right up in your face, put as much pressure on you as possible, it takes all decision making away from me to a certain degree um, and puts so much pressure on my opponent in multiple places on the table that they need to make the right decision in their in their turn to get them out of this predicament and when you've got two to three decisions to make um, and you're under a lot of pressure you don't necessarily see which the best one is um, I also like rolling a dice, so just sitting there and casting like eight spells a turn doesn't really do it for me. Um, like I'm a I'm a big fantasy guy. I I want to get I want to get in the middle of the board and have a massive fight. That that's the way I like to play. Um, so if, so if the army isn't prepared to do that, I'm probably probably not going to pick it up. So let me let me ask you this. Um... How long did it take you to figure out? Because Slaves of Darkness, you have a lot of different options you can play. In fact, you mentioned that the other Slaves of Darkness player in the UK plays a very different army than you do. Um, how long did it take you to figure out what within your army? So you said, okay, I like playing Slaves of Darkness. Um, I'm kind of figuring out my play style. Um, how long did it take you to figure out, like, what your playstyle was and did you like buy a whole bunch of different models and be like yeah that didn't work and then buy the other ones and be like yeah that didn't work and then kind of buy one and be like yeah this is the one right maybe kind of goldilocks it a little bit with some of the models yeah so i guess um ultimately i found out um my playstyle wasn't sitting back after playing two events with lumineth 
Um, I just I didn't really enjoy just being sat in your deployment zone and trying to shoot people off a table. Um, so I had a look at the armies that I'd also collected during COVID and I thought, you know what, let's, let's have a look at Archaon. Um, I saw his rules, got really excited by the prospect of like not having to roll for priority and having that information um, to know that you could push at that point where you where you know you're getting a double turn so you can go in clear screens on turn one and then turn two you've got the other pieces to go in and smash face um i was quite lucky in terms of not having to buy too many models um because when when i bought into slate of darkness from the first point archeon and the varangard were just the nicest models visually to me so I just bought them anyway um, I also bought like a bit like yourself bought every Warcry Warband so it's a case of just doubling up on a couple like the Untamed Beasts and Iron Golems um, so I essentially had it all and then the other major benefit I had was um, Laurie who obviously taught me a lot um, he had gone five and oh three tournaments in a row with Archeon, so I got an awful lot of advice from him. Um, and I, I was lucky enough to watch him play at a team's event where I went over just to spectate and saw the way in which the army played and was like, Wow, this is this is really different to how I've seen Warhammer be played in the past, so let's give that a go. And, um, like I say. I never really looked back. I, I, I think I took him to twenty-five events in a row or something, and like I said, I got just what? got this reputation for being the Archeon player in the UK. Yeah, I mean he's a he's an absolute beast, right? So you know, I like if you've got him, like uh, uh, use him. And in terms of figuring out your army, it does kind of help that he's like you know, I, I think he's almost around nine hundred points. Yeah, eight sixty. Yeah, so I mean that's you know more than a third of your army. So in terms of other, and then if you're using Varengard, that's uh, that's also pretty pricey. So you don't uh, you don't need to worry about uh, you know buying a ton of models if you're if you like those ones already. Because um, uh, I know for me, when trying to figure out sort of my play style, I um start like i said i started out with night hunt and i started out with like tons of chain rats so i was playing horde army ish and i realized that i didn't love moving all of those models like <laughs> i was just like this is kind of a slog i don't i don't like it as much and so i needed to pivot you know i i, I switched up i got some hex rays i got a black coach i got um some other things and and so that way i had much more movement and um, that seemed to fit a lot more with what I was trying to do than, you know, kind of be an enduring horde model, um, thing. Although I will argue that I think the chain rafts is the best point for point, uh, battle line unit in the, in the game. They are just like so stupidly endurable or enduring on the, on the table. So I kind of, I kind of missed them a little bit cause I don't play with them too, too much anymore, but, uh, they're on my shelf staring at me telling me why don't you play with me anymore you know <laughs> so 
Well, let's talk about the uh, U.S. Open. So you won the London GT, which qualify or uh, did, did you win the London GT, or did you just place really well to qualify? Um, I placed really well to qualify. So Darren Darren Watson won it um, and got invited to New Mexico's best general, um, and then I came in the top five, I believe, but also got um, loads of sports votes. So I qualified as best overall. Which was um yeah, it was pretty pretty surreal because we weren't we weren't told prior that doing well at this event um would get you invited to New Mexico. That's really funny because I think that um I mean all of our major opens, right, that we had the win I think the winner it was definitely the winner that was invited, but um, sometimes they did best overall and best general. But I think Adepticon, like there was, there was kind of a scandal with Adepticon here, where um, uh, they kind of miscalculated the points, and they had invited one person, and it should have been another person, and so they just said both of you come, you know. <laughs> so it's kind of awkward because they they kind of messed up some how some of the scoring worked and but anyway it, it all worked out in the end um but uh yeah so so you get the invite to come out here and um you are sitting in front of a, a field of i believe it was 16 players right yeah so um it was broken down into two groups of eight so you had eight in best overall and eight in best general um, so I was in the best overall category, um, and interestingly, it was all done on ITC rankings. Um, yeah. So in the UK, we don't really do anything with the ITC. So going in, I was obviously seeded as the bottom seed in best general. However, at the time, I believe I was ranked two in the UK and fourth in the world in the rankings that we use in the UK. So, um, just off the bat, um, I was quite looking forward to coming over and proving a point, um, especially considering I had to play against the number one seed in my category, game one, which was um, Matt Beasley. So, yeah, it was good, good fun. Very good. So uh, Matt Beasley was your first one, I believe. He was he playing Seraphon. He was playing Zinch. So yeah, yeah. lots of summoning. Um, yeah. So uh, had had him round one. Didn't win a single priority, which was not um, not fun for me at all. So uh, ended up losing by one VP. But he um, he played a really good game. Um, and it kind of meant if if I wanted to win the tournament, I had to do it the long way and play play seven games of Warhammer in uh, two days, which was not not ideal after travelling for twenty seven hours the day before. Um, so um, I had to just um, put on my big boy pants and um, rock it out and make sure I uh, did what I needed to do to play day two. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's talk about the format really quickly before we get into you know some of some of the games that you played. This was kind of a double elimination tournament where um, you 
you know, if you lost, you kind of got put into the consolation bracket. But if you won the consolation bracket, you could move your way up into um, playing for the the win again, right? Yeah. Um, so is this a tournament that you're familiar with? Is this one that you play in the UK very often? Because this is was like, I don't know if it's brand new in the United States, but we definitely don't. You, we use Swiss pairings more often than not. Yeah, so uh, I've never seen this before. Um, however, I think in terms of the for the event itself, it worked perfectly. Um, yeah. It meant that even once you've lost one game, you're not out of the running, um, and you can still go on to win the event. Whereas, I guess in Swiss, like assuming there's a, a high amount of players at an event if you lose a game the likelihood is you're not going to win the event because someone will go 5-0 and um, but in in this with only 8 players the double elimination um, was really good it obviously meant that if you did lose game 1 you still had an opportunity to go on and, and win it um, however it did mean that some people did only play two games of Warhammer, which I guess when you're traveling as far as you ha- as you have, um, probably wasn't ideal for some people. But equally, it was all funded by Games Workshop, so they can't complain too much. Right, and I think that's probably the reason why we don't see this format pretty much in any other tournament because. There's, there would be some pretty hurt feelings if you, you know, paid and entered into a GT um, and you only got two games in that weekend. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, Warhammer's such a high-cost hobby, I guess, with all the traveling that you need to do for events, with hotels, diesel, flights, or um, even event tickets, right? So, like, most weekends away do end up costing quite a large amount of money so if you were to to get knocked out after two games um you probably wouldn't be best pleased (laughs) right yeah and and the thing is is i don't know about you but um you know well probably not you but since you keep going four and one and you know five and oh and all that stuff but you know if i go two and three on a weekend some of my favorite games are those last ones where i'm playing other folks that kind of are also two and three or you know, um, three and two or something like that. Some of those games are just like, you know, we have been so much fun to play, um, very chilled out and relaxed because we know that we're not, you know, competing for the top table or whatever. And, um, you know, having a tournament format where it's a double elimination kind of eliminates that fun that you could have too. And just more experience as well, where you just, I mean, play more Warhammers, play more Warhammers. That's pretty great. Exactly. And um, people play at events for different reasons. So I I go to events to try and win them. Other people go to events to have that break from their very busy life and play five games of Warhammer where they can forget about the real world and play with their fantastically painted miniatures and really immerse himself into that side of the hobby and to have conversations with like-minded people for a weekend um, to give them the the, that break that everyone needs from from real life for for that for those two days so um yeah i think like you alluded to the 
for some people the games day two where they're duking it out for the wooden spoon are actually their most enjoyable games because they found their footing in the event um, they're not playing against all the tryhards on day one um, and they're just having great games of Warhammer running around with 50 squigs or 200 stabbers or whatever um, right. but, but they're loving their life yeah definitely and um, I, I think you're the point you made is is very apt here which is if games workshops doing you know the all paid expenses or all expenses paid um you know you play two games you're out you get to still have a good time that weekend and and not worry about uh you know the the cost of it or feel like you you know lost out on it so i don't know that we'll see any formats pop up like that anytime soon here in the United States, I think we'll stick to the Swiss pairings, and you know everybody gets five games regardless. Uh, just just because I just I, I don't know that it'll be very good for the community. But I think a end tournament like this, a kind of an open tournament, is it's kind of interesting, and I think uh, I think it led to some really cool matchups that we ended up seeing. Yeah, definitely, and I I think it will probably stay next year as well when it's done again. Um, so, yeah, it was for, for me it was great because I ended up, like I say, playing seven games of Warhammer um, and making the most of being out there. Um, and also those that those that did only play two games, like I say, they had they'd been flown from wherever they were in the country or wherever they were in the world, and had been booked into this fantastic resort where they could then go and spend the rest of the weekend exploring Albuquerque or making the most of all the amenities that were available at the, um, the resort we stayed at so yeah um it was Which a nice looked super fancy by the way oh it uh it was amazing um the views are incredible the rooms were fantastic um i just wish i won the first game so i could have experienced a bit more of Albuquerque and not had to play till midnight but um <laughs> It, it's all good. I like understand why. While I was out there, I was out there to play games of Warhammer, opposed to have a free holiday in New Mexico. But um, yeah, yeah, the resort itself was absolutely amazing. Yeah, uh, very cool. Now, um, before like you, you talked about, you uh, played Matt Beasley first. Um, before we get into that, what what was the list that you were taking? So I took my Knights of the Empty Throne list, which is a list that um, I knew I was going to be playing for England in um, Belfast the week after. So I thought it was a great opportunity to get more reps in with that. Um, the list is essentially two units of six Varengard, which are heroes. Um, and then it's all about buffing them to the best they can be. So you have two sorcerer lords and a war shrine um, and then you just have loads of iron golems to fill out your battle line but essentially the way the list works is that it um, has a lot of save stacking so okay. you get um, oracular visions on the sorcerer lords which gives plus one save um, you've obviously got two of them and it can stack so it's not specific to can only affect one unit um, you then have the War Shrine, which if you pray to Zinch, you'd get plus one save and a four-up spell ignore. 
And then, being in Zinch, you re-roll all your ones and have a five-up spell ignore as well. So, the way it works is you essentially have two units of unkillable Varangard, unless you can do mass mortal wounds outside of the magic phase, because... Once per game, you can get your Varen- one unit of Varangard on plus six to their save, re-rolling ones. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as, 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 as I'm sure we'll talk about later when Scooter wagged and sent his whole army into one unit. Um, and then they have, they have the ability to have a four up, five up, five up spell ignore. So if you're trying to do me in the magic phase like Seraphon do or Zinch do um, the likelihood is you're going to do no damage to me as well um, so you have to really do mass mortal wounds in the combat phase or the shooting phase to really do anything to my army um, and then it's just a case of getting the right scenarios so the list really wants to play in a bubble which doesn't suit the way I play um, and this was the list that Toby Meadows basically played for England and we agreed it was the better of the two for teams Um, so it doesn't like to spread itself out too far so like playing on six objectives is pretty horrible Um, and you kind of want to play on three or the prize of Gallic because it's all quite close Um, but yeah like I said if you can't if you can't do mass mortal wounds you're you're really not doing any damage at all to to the army. That's crazy. That <laughs> man, there I could I can only imagine like you know just rolling tons of dice and being like, well, nothing happened. You know, just because uh, I, I I guess unless you roll, I mean, you're re-rolling ones on your save. So like even if you do roll a one, like maybe one wound goes through on a whole bunch. You know, so yeah. Wow. Yes. Wow. It's pretty oppressive when you explain it to people as well, and uh, yeah. it all starts clicking in their head that they're trying to work out how they actually do any damage, and then you tell them they don't, essentially. <laughs> yeah, so you don't. <laughs> so, uh, and what's what's interesting about that too is that you've you've also taken away. I mean, you've basically taken away the combat phase and the. Um, now, does all this save stacking happen in the hero phase, or does it happen in the combat phase too? Or so yeah, like one of the ways of initiating the plus one save is all out defense. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But you can get plus one save three times with well four times with finest hour once per game. Um, yeah. But you can get plus one save three times without any interaction from your opponents. So it's pretty hard to deny it. Um, yeah. And then obviously you can, with prior game knowledge of knowing your opponent's army, you can then work out, do you need to fully save stack one army, uh, one unit of Varangard even, or can yeah. you spread out the save stacking and send both in, knowing that they can't deal with either unit. Right. So, it, what what tends to happen is you would save stack your general, because they pile in six and you, your opponent can't retreat from them. So, you end up pinning your opponent in their deployment zone with a unit that they can't do any damage to. Right. Um, but yeah, it's a 
doesn't make for too much of a fun game when once you once you get it all off and um, they're just stuck there swinging with you, knowing they can't trade because the the output from the Vanguard is pretty oppressive as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, they they are kind of a hefty price tag in terms of both dollar or I mean pound cost, uh, you know, <laughs> dollar cost here, but uh, also points cost. But they they definitely are, are worth those points. Yeah, no, hundred um, percent. Just the ability to fight twice. Um, in the old book, they could reroll all hits and wounds as well with spells or a prayer from the war shrine. So the consistency in which they do damage was like second to none. So yeah, um, really, really amplifies their their output. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So um, okay, so. If you let's see, you played Matt Beasley the first round, um, and uh, and I think lost that first round. So what, like, what was your journey like after that? Um, yeah, so lost to Matt Beasley by one VP. Um, it then meant I had to play. I believe it was Evan Markham, who's from SoCal, down in uh, well, plays in California. Yep. yep. Um, he was playing Skaven. And he lost that game in his deployment phase, so we played my turn, and then he conceded. Um, so he was playing Skaven, and he he, he deployed, assuming um, he was going to give the turn away, and that I'd hit his screen, um, or I'd just sit there and not do anything. Um, but he de he deployed too close, so I, t I was happy when he gave me the turn. And I went in and I took off 20 clan rats, a warbringer, and six storm fiends with one unit of oh Arangard. Yeah. The storm fiends hurts the most there, for sure. <laughs> yeah, so, um. Yeah. When he had lost all of that with one unit of Arangard double fighting, he was, he was pretty happy to hug it out and realize he'd done a misplay. Um. I said, oh, can you at least just fire your warp lightning cannons so, I can, so we can see if they would do much damage and potentially get you back in the game? And I think they killed, like, one and a half Varangard. Um Yeah, he didn't He didn't roll those elusive ones for the uh, power on the uh, warp lightning cannons and was rolling five, fives and sixes, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, he um, he lost that game in his deployment. Um, so that, that was quite... A sh without being too egotistical was quite a straightforward game yeah um i then had the pleasure of playing against is it um gareth thomas who yep. is the to for old town throwdown and i believe also helps with lvo so um i played against him with his corn and corn really isn't too nice a matchup for me if he can get scarbrand off because my list can deal with Rend for forever, um, but Scarbrand is a different entity all to himself with his mortal wound output. Mm -hmm. um, fortunately, I won the right priorities, and when Scarbrand did hit me, he left me with two Varangard, which could still double fight, and then they, those two Varangard killed Scarbrand, and then with Rally managed to get 
get my Varengard back up to like a decent size unit, whilst the other yeah. six Varengard dealt with the rest of his army. Um, and obviously the Parlin six and being able to auto run a unit and giving them a 22 inch threat range meant I could get around the Corn Demon Prince as well because I wasn't needing to charge, I could just pile into things and use um, the corn tricks against them, so to speak. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that was cool. Sorry, it, it was Scarbrand one of the models that you kind of feared most during the tournament? Scarbrand, um, yeah, based, based on my, pet, my side of the pairings, um, it was Scarbrand... Um, just purely because of the mortal wound damage, there wasn't really any other big models or units that I was too worried by. Yeah. Um, until I played against um, L um, with uh, Gargants, having never played against the new book, um, and realised that a mega could do forty-six mortals on a four-up. Um, didn't that? That was a that was a tough lesson to learn. Um, when I just thought, oh, I've played Gargant loads, so I know how he win this. And then he just, um, every time, like, four up, 46 mortals, that's 21 mortal wounds. That's 24 mortal wounds. I was like, okay, so the Varengard are dead. Okay. Um, fortunately, like, managing to trade in the right places um, meant I took I took off all four megas uh, top, top of three. Um, but not knowing that ability and sending my Varengard in, um, yeah, had had me sweating a little bit. Yeah, definitely. I can uh, I can imagine. <laughs> I can I can imagine. All right, so you played uh, uh, Gareth, and um, again, you're working your way kind of back up through the constellation bracket, right? Um, so who was your next opponent after that? So that was L with his Mega Gargants. So, fortunately for me, we played on Six Steel Nests, which is eight objectives. And I know I don't like playing on it. However, Gargants hate playing on it even more because they only have four models. Um, and I guess we both kind of misplayed. Um, I didn't know about the Mega Gargant ability, which kind of threw me off a little bit. When, when I found out, um, but he sent all four Megas into the middle of the table, um, which meant I could tag all four of them with my un my general, which he couldn't retreat from. Um, so I made his general fight last in my Spheranx, and then I just double activated, killed his general, and took off a uh, War Stomper. Um, and then thought, okay, that's fine. And then he went, oh, the Gargant's got this ability to do 46 mortal wounds on a 4-up. I was like, oh, okay, like, it's 50-50 chance, and then hopefully he won't spike. Um, so he rolls his 4-up, and then he rolls his 4d6 into 21 mortal wounds. And I was like, okay. So that's that, that's four of my Varengard just dead, unless yeah. I make, make some ward saves. Fortunately... I made a few six-up ward saves from my war shrine, and it left me with free Varengard, and I was like, okay, we're, we're still fine, trying to tell myself that, after I've just seen my unkillable unit get, like, almost one-banged. Um, yeah, right. 
And then I won. And then I won. Pri- I won priority. I was like, well, he's not going to do it again, is he? Like, surely. So I was like, I've got all my buffs up. I'm not in my buff ranges to put them back on again. You can have the turn. Um, yeah. I knew his gatebreaker was fighting last, so I was like, okay, so I don't have to worry about the gatebreaker yet. And then he was like, I'm going to finest hour him. I was like, okay, so we can't we can't attack the gatebreaker because I can't double activate. I've only got three Varengard, so I can't kill him. So we then just try working on another War Stomper and lower it. Um, and he then rolls his four up into four sixes, and my Varengard are just gone. I'm like. I'm like, oh my god, like this, this shouldn't be happening. He's done 45 mortal wounds with two swings of his club. Um, and then goes back into my turn, and I'm like, right, well, I guess, I guess we just do it again, right? We fully stack another unit, and we just send them into these three mega gargants. Um, and I was like, right, let's just kill the gatebreaker now because we have to. Um, and I think I left him on like five wounds, um, and yeah, you guessed it. Rolls his four up again, and I was like, right, it's going to be less than average this time. It's fine. Did twenty mortal wounds, and I was just like, oh my god. Four, four more Varengard dead, um, but 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 fortunately managed to managed to take off the rest of the wounds needed to kill the mega. And then, um, yeah, get in and um, win priority again and just do the remaining damage on the War Stompers, which then it looked like a fairly straightforward game as I cruised to victory, whereas if you saw the look on my face as he kept smashing my Varengard off the table, it was was far from the case in the the first two battle rounds. Yeah. Um... (laughs) <laughs> sometimes you're just like oh this is not going my way and then uh you end up being able to snatch victory out of the jaws of defeat there right yeah exactly so yeah um so yeah that that was quite a fun game um unfortunately like it didn't take too long because we were scheduled to play till midnight which probably would have killed me um but when he just has to play with four models and they were all kind of stuck where they were stuck, and then I just had to keep running six Varengard into him and hope I killed them quicker than he killed me, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Okay, so uh, you played, um, just to kind of recap a little bit, you ended up playing um, Matt Beasley and his, well, his army was um, Zinch, and then you played... Uh, Evan Markham with his Skaven, Gareth Thomas with his Corn, and L, whose surname I have forgotten, with his uh, Mega Gargans. Right. Okay. Perfect. All right. So now you're moving into game five, which you're getting closer to jumping back up into um, the the kind of championship bracket. I think this is your last game of the consolation bracket, right? Yeah, that's correct, and um, I got my deserved rematch against Matt Beasley. Okay. So, yeah, so it was um, 
again, a really good game. However, in this game, instead of winning zero priorities, I won every priority. So, um, and we spoke quite a lot after the game, and he was like, I kind of feel like you, as in me, learnt more than um, I did in the first game than what he did. So, I learnt the way in which he wanted to play and um, he didn't really see that or be able to take that in from my from his perspective so I had a I had a very clear game plan going into it and um, again just maybe a miss a slight misplay from him probably cost him quite a few points from allowing me to pin in his enlightened with my general um, because there, there goes quite a lot of the output from his army once my save yeah. stacking's gone. Um, and also, I kind of got to witness firsthand in the first game how strong some of his spells were into my support pieces. Um, so I learnt to, to kind of protect them as best as I could. Now, do you think that he didn't maybe learn as much as you? Because I, I know you didn't get priority a lot in that first turn, so maybe you you weren't able to do everything you wanted to in that first game? Yeah, I think um, because he was always on the front foot, he probably yeah. felt in control of the game rather than having to chase it. Um, yeah. when, you're, when you're constantly in control, you're not having to worry too much about what your opponent's doing because you're, you're ahead. And you're just having to maintain that so you're just going right as long as I can do this and the way Zinch likes to play with all their summoning you can keep quite good board con board control on multiple objectives when you're playing in a a normal deployment whereas we we played um is it um won't bat down so the six there is six objectives but it's um lengthways so the board is a lot narrower, so it's really hard for him to escape my Varangard without engaging them in combat. Um, and I knew that was going to play massively into my favour, because in the first game, he kind of really only fought one unit for the game, opposed to having to deal with both. Um, and then once both got in, he realised that like, I just take off a unit of pink horrors almost every turn with re-rolling all hits and wounds right and that's incredible yeah so even i think he had he had a unit of 10 pinks with mystic shield five up ward and um my varangar just lifted them so that that was that was with a double activation but to go through essentially what is 75 odd wounds with the five up ward um was pretty nice right. yeah um and then he realized that actually it doesn't doesn't really matter what what he sends into them they will just die and the fact that i'd locked his enlightened in combat and they can't retreat from me just meant he had to try and commit to getting rid of my varangard with his screamers with their mortal wounds when they fly over um but ultimately once once they're in combat they're there and they can't do those tricks anymore so um no it's a really good game and a bit more of a chess match rather than me chasing the game so it was uh it was good fun to play and um 
Matt's an absolute pleasure to to play against. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to kind of have that that rematch. And let me ask you, throughout the throughout the tournament, how how big of an impact did the missions have on the outcomes of the games? So, I, I argue all the time that all the good players, um, like the way the reason they're great players in in the world and in the U.S. and the U.K. and all that is because they know how to mitigate negative aspects right so like if they're playing against a um if they're playing against a uh an uh, or they're playing on a mission that maybe not favors them they know how to like use their movement to you know counteract that or they know how to like castle up when they need to or, or something like that did you find that the missions that that you had there um played in your favor or against your favor or like how big of an impact did they have on the tournament overall do you think um, I think game six probably had the biggest impact. Um, okay. However, the rest of the missions I'm usually quite content with. Like, I've played over 140 games of Warhammer in this edition, so I've played yeah. a lot of the scenarios multiple times. Right. Um, I was quite lucky to get Gargants on Silk Steel because that's a that's a mission that I really don't want to play. Um, yeah. Because spreading across eight objectives isn't isn't the way in which the army wants to play. Right, but he has four maximum gargants, right? So Ex exactly. So to get that match up into that scenario was hugely beneficial. Um, and then game six, um, I have a mission which, for me mentally and the way I've played and the armies that I come up against, I don't think I can lose. Okay like ever really like i'd probably unless yeah i just think with with that scenario we played realmstone cash so okay um i think nine times out of ten regardless of whatever army you put into me um i will win and i'll win quite big yeah um and i think the only list that could potentially beat me on it is dragons, like all dragons, and you've got to spike mortal wounds. And if you don't, yeah. then I think you still lose. Right. Um. And and so game six, you played you played scooter. Uh, you jumped back up into the um, kind of championship bracket there, and scooter had made his way through. And for you to win, you're going to need to beat scooter twice, right? Yeah, that's correct. And, um, and yeah. Yeah, so we, we did the classic, oh, let's go through each other's armies, and obviously yeah. pig, pigs are pigs, so I didn't really need much explaining on that front. And then I told him what my army did, and he was like, holy, I did not I did not know that is, that is a thing. Um, and I, I basically explained to him, like, without trying to get into his head with the dark arts and whatever, I said, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the first turn. Yeah. I'm going to put a unit of Varengard on that objective with plus four to their save, reroll all hits and wounds, and you're not going to do any damage to me, which will mean you're going to be on zero battle tactics turn one. You're going to be on zero points in the primary. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to be up four zero. And then I'm going to be up 4-0 again, turn 2. But you might score a battle tactic. So it's then going to be 8-2. Uh, 
and then there's then it's going to split and then I'm going to go and send the rest of my army to one objective and you have to come and fight me if you want to get back into the game which yeah. you don't do any damage so um, and he was like okay we'll see we'll see and I was like alright yeah. so did my turn did exactly what I said and he sent 18 pigs or no it might, might have just been 12 pigs a more crusher a mega boss on foot into my vanguard and he killed one on all his impact hits and stomp he called the war so he was on rend four yeah. rend three um and i was like okay um i'm still on a two up re-rolling ones so you do you i'll be fine um so he fought with one unit one unit of pigs and i was like okay um I didn't take a single wound. Um, and then I fought with my Varangard and I took off six pigs and his mega boss on foot. So he got to fight. Um, he popped Destroyer, did zero damage. Oh no. Yeah. Destroyer, I was like, oh, hopefully he can get it with Destroyer, right? Because I mean. Yeah. Uh, so, so zero damage because. Um, statistically he does no damage because he doesn't have enough attacks Yeah. Um, and then he went with his more crusher who did zero damage and then I went I'm going to just use my once per game ability to fight twice and I killed his more crusher oh. so he was then left with six pigs um, I won priority and gave it back to him and uh, at this point I think he managed to do eye for an eye on a unit of iron golems and then in his turn, I killed the six pigs I was locked in combat with, and then I killed the other six pigs, or the other 12 pigs, or whatever, in my turn, which meant I won 26 to 2. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, that is very atypical for Scooter, right? Yeah. <laughs> he was like, I've never seen this army played in the US. Yeah. Um, it's one thing being told what an army does. And then to see it in person, um, and how it actually works on a tabletop is is something quite different. So um, he was he was pretty surprised, um, despite me trying to tell him at the beginning of the game that um, he he literally has zero chance of of beating me on this mission because he doesn't doesn't have the mortal wound output. Um, so that was quite nice, like. It was also nice going into the game from a mental point of view, knowing you you can't lose and you're taking it to game seven. Uh, yeah, definitely. Especially like I mean, that's a that's a big momentum, like <laughs> move into the the last game of the weekend. Yeah, definitely, and um, also probably put some thoughts in his head as to how on earth he has to deal with it. So. Yeah, mentally, massive confidence boost meant going into game seven. I knew I knew I had the one up on him already. Um but his whole demeanour didn't change at all and he was still an absolute joy to play with. Yeah. Yeah, uh he is a big bear, you know, of a man and uh I mean he's a he's a very large guy, but he is like one of the nicest guys too, and playing against him across the table uh, he puts you at ease. He's he's cheering for you a lot of times when you're rolling, 
you know, and he's like, yeah, man, do it. Let's, let's see what happens. And he's definitely one of those guys. that's like, I'm going to play my game and let's see you play your game and let's see who wins instead of, you know, like this really, uh, like uber competitive, like I'm going to try to beat you at every, every turn that I can, you know? So, um, no, definitely. And it, he, he massively came across that way. And everything that you've alluded to of the way in which he plays, is a hundred percent the truth. Like both wishing each other luck on priority, like rooting for him to actually kill a unit of Varangard because he's not taken any off. Um, so stuff like that when it's happened in the game is really good fun to see. And you just like we'd already won by being invited to the event anyway. So yeah. the fact that I got to play against someone that I've watched on streams, etc., and have have those interactions with were were fantastic. Um, obviously, beating him adds an extra cherry on the top. Um, but hopefully, we'll we'll meet at LVO and we'll get we'll get to have our our, our trilogy. Yeah, the <laughs> the I would call it a rubber match. But you, uh, spoiler alert, you beat him in the seventh round to uh, win it all. Um, I I think that game was a little bit closer though, wasn't it? Or yeah, so we played close to the ch- no, we played um, Nardus paths, so four objectives, and um, he uh, basically played a lot more cagey because he realised all the time I have my save stacks, he doesn't do anything. So right, we both basically played a chess match for three turns and went. Um, just on the scoring, doing the battle tactics you could do about engaging, etc. And then I just won a crucial priority and managed to flip the turn back to him. So he he basically had a really bad double into me, which he wasn't playing for, and which allowed me to then open up for a better double, which I ended up getting. So once I got the double that I needed to... Um, it just opened up the board for me to score and and win the game, but it was a much better representation of top end Warhammer than what it was in game one. And I think game one, after kind of explaining it to him, he realised he couldn't really do anything, so he just went, "Screw it, let's let's see what damage I can do to give me an idea of what I need to do going into the next game." So I think he learnt a lot from realising his whole army going into one unit that's fully safe stack doesn't do anything. So he was like, right, I could spread you out a bit more now because <clears throat> there's multiple objectives and um, play the scenario, um, which he did really well. And then ultimately it just came down to those two priorities where I could just give him a, a bad double turn for me to get a better one. Um, yeah. And that's the way ultimately the wins your games of Warhammer is not being too eager just to take priority when you don't have to. Yep. Uh, patience, I think, is a key in this game. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Well, congratulations on your win of the U.S. Open. I It was kind of a... I know they had the U.S. Open out here before, but with this new format, it almost feels like an inaugural event, um, the way that they did it, because uh, the last... The last U.S. Open was down in New Orleans, I believe, and um, it was kind of like 
2021, so it was kind of COVID, not really COVID, you know, and and uh, it feels like this one was maybe the first, it's kind of the first one that, uh, even though there was other ones before it, it just felt new, you know, so. Yeah, no, it was, it was fantastic, and both Mike and Zach, who ran the event from Games Workshop, both alluded to at the event that they want to year on year make it bigger and better so there'll be more qualifying events in the UK as an example to get more UK people out there more people from Central Europe Australia etc and they just want to make the event as big as it can be Um, so I'm hoping to qualify again go out and retain my um, title that would be that would be awesome. I'd love to see kind of this U.S. Open sort of become the default, like, you know, World Open, if you will. So that'd be yeah, no, yeah. Hope hopefully, fingers crossed. Um, yeah, they they seem to be really engaged with the the hobby at the moment. And um, like I say, big shout out to Mike and Zach that um, ran it for for the U.S. Now, right on the heels of this victory, you turned around. You mentioned before that you went to Belfast and played in the Six Nations. So is this, um, I, I think I told you before when you told me you were headed to the Six Nations, um, that I am I am a rugby player, I am a rugby coach, and I'm an overall rugby fan. So when I hear Six Nations, my thought you know, immediately goes to rugby you know between wales scotland england france uh italy and ireland right um is the six nations kind of similar do you pull in the same six nations or is it a different six nations how does the format work here yeah so um it's extremely similar except it is um northern ireland ireland wales scotland england and sweden so it france i believe were invited at the inauguration of the Six Nations, however they declined, and then Sweden decided to step up, and basically it's still always going to be Six Nations, so um, yeah. unless one team pulls out, there won't be anyone invited um, to take take anyone's places, so year on year, all Six Nations meet up, each country will host... Um, and we have five great games of Warhammer against local rivals for the UK with all the the Welsh guys, the Irish and the Scottish and then it's quite cool to have the guys fly over from Sweden to take part as well Now is this a one weekend event? Is this a multiple so like the, with rugby obviously like you're not going to play multiple games in a weekend, and so it's you know takes place over twelve weeks. You know, one game every two weeks or something like that. Um, it, it, maybe it's not quite that long, but it like it like how does this work uh, in terms of like this tabletop game? So um, it is just run over a weekend. So okay, everyone you play one round against each country. So it's all eight man teams. So um, it's a a pretty similar format to Worlds, I believe, in the sense that um, you have your uncapped score and your cap score. So your cap score is a hundred points, and you're on the twenty and O system for win win loss. Um, so we you play every country once, and then ultimately you see who 
comes out on top of the podium and um spoiler alert england have never lost it so wow okay we've kind of yeah had we've maintained our success year on year um and this year particularly we gave out five new caps of which one of them was mine thankfully um which kind of shows the strength and depth that we have within the england team itself yeah, you know, it's funny because England is the size of uh, the state of, like, roughly the state of Wyoming here in, yeah. you know, the United States. Yet you've got, like, I, I don't know, I mean, when I say England, I meant UK, right? Like, UK's got, you know, is roughly the size of uh, of Wyoming, and yet you guys got have, like, 60 million people there. The state of Wyoming here has less than a million people that live in it, you know, and so, um, no, that's that's the least popular. I chose the least populated state for a reason, just to, you know, yeah. wild comparisons, but um, maybe hyperbolic a little bit. But the, uh, the point is, is that uh, in terms of density, I think uh, the, you know, like, where you play, especially like in London, I bet there's um, a lot of, you know, close uh, AOS players that it's easy to kind of get to get together and play, and um, you know, going to a tournament in the country, maybe you're going like I don't know, two hours, three hours, something like that to get to a big tournament. Maybe it's a little bit more, but um, sometimes here, you know, you got to travel like a day or half a day, or something like that to get to tournaments. Yeah, we're we're really lucky in the UK. So I'm based right in the southeast. So uh-huh. for for a UK tournament goer, I'm in like the worst possible location because um, all most most of the big events are in the north. Um, okay. So it's about a five hour drive to a lot of okay. to a lot of the big events. Um, however, you could do a GT every weekend if you wanted to. Yeah. I try and tend to do all the big ones, so I'll do maybe two, three GTs a month, um, because I also just find it's the best way of getting good, high-quality reps in, right? Um, against a wider range of armies. Um, but equally, I've always been quite open to travelling around locally, like of an evening, happy to drive an hour and a half, etc., to someone play a couple of games of high-end Warhammer and then drive an hour and a half home. So um, I'm happy to do that extra legwork to improve my game by getting good games in with people that I deem to be either better than me or at a similar footing. Right, right. Yeah, I think think in the United States there's probably... I want to say there's at least a, a, a GT every week. The problem is, is that, like... That GT might be in Seattle. That GT might be in New York. The next one might be in Texas. The next one might be, you know. And so, like, if you were to try to do a GT every week, like, you would probably go broke um, just on plane tickets alone, you know. Yeah. So, um, so I think that's I think that's awesome. Uh, you know, the more reps and high quality practice you can get in, the obviously the better player you're going to be. And I know I know in talking with. Um, Jeremy Vessier, um, who we had on the podcast, he was uh, the captain of Team America last year, um, and he was saying that you know England's England's usually the team to beat. 
Um, and you know, Sweden's a tough team too. So yeah. Yeah. A lot of good, a lot of good players. Yeah. And, um, I guess hot news flash. Um, it's just been announced that I've made the world's team for this year as well. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Where's, where's worlds this year? Is it in Ireland? Did I hear that right? It's in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Amsterdam, that's right. So, um, unfortunately, a couple of our players have had to drop who can't make it, and um, myself and Max have been invited up from the Six Nations team to be part of the Worlds team, which would be quite exciting. It means I get to meet all the guys again from New Mexico and um, hopefully get some more games in with them. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, I'm excited for you, and that that'll take place in. Um, it's usually what July, August time frame. Um, it is the very end of May to beginning of June. Oh, geez, that's earlier than I thought. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, great, great. Well, congratulations. Uh, so the last thing I wanted to touch on, and like I said before the show, I know you went kind of deep in depth with AOS Coach on slaves to darkness but i just wanted to you know you, you you've been playing your slaves to darkness list with the vanguard with archaeon with you know some some of your other things that you have going on um what are your initial impressions of the slave to, new slave to darkness that's coming out is it is it going to be better is it going to be more difficult to maintain your list um like what's what are some of the pros and cons that you think coming out um i think um the play style is going to be a lot different, which um, I think ultimately will suit me more than it will others. Um, it's not as survivable anymore, and um, you, it's now relying on the pure damage output that the the army brings, which yeah. is far significant to what it used to be, um, which sounds ridiculous, because if anyone's played against me and they've seen me lift all their toys off the table um, they'd be surprised by, by that comment alone I'd imagine but um, there's a lot more utility in the book I think there's not just the two lists that we saw last year being played I think there's a huge scope for a lot of different lists so including models that you would never have even given a second look at in the old book so your knights, your warriors, your chosen are all now fundamental pieces for a lot of lists. Um, yeah. They've got a really big glow up. Um, they've got some really cool additions in the sense of ensorcelled banners to have different effects. Um, and then even down to heroes like Chaos Lord and Karkadrak was like utter rubbish in the in the last edition, whereas Whereas now, like with the new, with the way the Eye of the Gods works now, his um, War Scroll ability to immediately fight first and then have a unit of knights immediately fight. There's so much synergy around him. The way you can build like this really strong knight strike first build that will just go in and do an obscene amount of damage, um, especially whilst we make use of the current Blade of Corn allies, which I'm sure we're going to have to make K while the sun shines, because that'll all probably disappear when they get their new book this year. Um, 
but yeah, there's there's so much utility within the book and loads of different ways you can build lists and and play the game. Um, for me, it's really refreshing. Um, I played a hideous amount of games with the old book in the last 12 months. And um, it was also... You used to just get known for just being on this two-up re-rolling one-armor save, which... Um, people would get really salty about and I'm going to be glad when the the salt disappears and I'm playing a more honest, in inverted commas army, which um, is looking to just go in there and deal a serious amount of damage and um, I'm sure people will get salty when I show them I've got two units of 15 chosen and they've got to try and deal with it with a 5 up rally so um I'm sure we'll get the levels of salt back at some point, but um, at least they they can feel like they're killing stuff this time. But um, I'm looking forward right. to it. I think it would be harder to get five and O's, but um, I'm looking forward to the prospect of getting it on the table and pushing, pushing to get them. Yeah, you know it's funny. A lot of the new three O books um, that even started maybe with the. Um... Soul Blight Grave Lords at the end of two, right? Which is really, you know, that Soul Blight Grave Lords is really a three O book in disguise, because um, you know third edition was right around the corner. A lot of these books, what I love about them, and I love about third edition is how we got rid of sort of those uh, battalions uh, in second edition that really boxed you into certain lists because if you wanted those battalion benefits you had to take essentially that combination of units and uh the way that a lot of these new third edition books are written i feel like they all give such flexibility in terms of lists list buildings there's not like one or two options only like you can really mix and match and find what really matches your play style find something that works for you to go out and have a have a, a good time and still be competitive um i don't i don't know that we've really seen a book that has been utter garbage yet in 3.0 maybe i'm wrong about that but no i think i think they've done a really good amount of um balancing books yeah. um I think the worst book they've bought out is probably Skaven. I think they've they did a bit of a copy and paste job and didn't really change a huge amount in it. Um, I've not yeah. seen, I've not really seen Skaven win events in the UK or consistently do well. Um, whereas the, all the other books seem to have at least a list and identity that will enable them to win the odd event. Um, but yeah, I think I think the Games Workshop team have done an incredible job of um, trying to balance the game, and with all their new books, really honing in on the fact that there is a wide range of ways in which you can you can play each one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I think I think Skaven's got some good lists in there. I just don't think enough people are playing it to really tease it out. You know, um, and maybe it's because, like, it's a to be able to tease out that good list, you need to invest quite a bit in playtesting a lot of different things with it, and that requires an investment in the model range and and trying it out 
and I think there's bigger, shinier things than Skaven at the moment. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I bought nine Storm Fiends because I was like, that seems like a good list. Um, and now I kind of just have it to like playtest against when I'm running stuff yeah. because um, nine Storm Fiends is a really good teams list. So preparing for stuff like that in a teams environment is quite handy. But I've also realised that you will just get one or two massively bad matchups in singles that for me and the reasoning why I go to events doesn't warrant me taking it because I, I just don't think I can I can win an event with it because it's got too many bad matchups whereas like Slaves of Darkness I know based on statistics they're like the fourth worst army in terms of win rate in the game but I don't think people play it to its most optimal because I think this this season alone, I've got like a ninety three percent win rate with them. Wow! Um, and that's it. That's purely based on competitive games, not club games or anything. Right. So, um, yeah, it's yeah, it's just getting that identity of working out the list that suits you and the way you want to play it and yep. Skaven for me isn't one um, like you say there's, there's a lot of models in that book and I think it's it's going to take someone dedicated to Skaven to unlock the potential yeah somebody just needs to kind of focus down and, and, and play it out and I just don't know that anybody really wants to you know there's other girls to dance with uh, at the ball you know rather than um, having to try it out a little bit so um, it'll be interesting. I'm excited to see what you pull out for, uh, the, uh, new slaves to darkness. Uh, what do you guys use best coast pairings out there for your stuff or like, what do you use for a tournament? So, um, now we will be using best coast pairings. I think okay. for the majority, we used to use a system called tabletop TO, but that's unfortunately gone offline. So, um, a lot of our tournament organizers now, using bcp so the nice thing about bcp i was going to say is that um we can start looking at uh, some of your lists and seeing what you're doing um just to kind of get in get an eye out and what you're trying so um we'll have to keep our keep our eye on you as you uh continue to take the uk by storm and uh you know make your way back to the u.s uh, next year for the u.s open so exactly no looking forward to it and um yeah, I'll be be out there in LVO if anyone listening wants to come and say hi and talk slow to darkness or or you can slide into my DMs on Twitter. I tend to be quite open in terms of talking all things slaves if if people want some advice or what have you. Oh, that's very that's very kind and I will totally vouch for the fact that, you know, when I hit you up in the DM on Twitter, I got a response almost immediately and I was uh I'm also surprised at the hours that you keep because there's sometimes where I'm like, these gotta be in bed by now. If the if the NFL's on, I'll be awake. Oh really? You're an NFL fan, huh? Yeah. unfortunately for my sins, the New Orleans Saints aren't doing very well this year. Oh, well, that's all right. I'm a Green Bay fan, and they are just doing terribly. Yeah, you know my pain. Yes. <laughs> doing terribly. So, anyway, Phil, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a great chat. Um, I, I very much enjoyed getting to know you. It's really interesting talking to somebody from a completely different meta, 
than um, what we have in the U.S. And, and you know, it's funny because in the U.S. we have different metas. Like you've got like a Mid-Atlantic, you got a Northeast, you got a South, Southern California, you got a Northwest Pacific, a Texas. I mean, we kind of have different metas within the United States, but it's all of that's completely different than what we see in England or Sweden or something like that. So it's really interesting to hear how you're approaching things and Again, congratulations on the U.S. Open win. Congratulations on the Team England win at the Six Nations. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again sometime in the future. No, yeah, thank you very much for having me on. Pleasure. Pleasure to speak to you and pleasure to spread my love of the hobby to your community as well. Very, very good. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to us tonight. Uh, if you have any questions, hit up Phil on uh, Twitter. He's... Um, uh, let's see what uh, you're at AOS underscore Marshy 92 on Twitter. And uh, you can also hit us up on social media on uh, Facebook, Twitter, uh, wherever, wherever you can find a uh, tabletop and beyond. We'd love to hear from you and hear what you thought about uh, this episode and, and provide your comments on what you think of uh, Phil Marsh and his slave to darkness. We'd love to hear it. So uh, have a good night, everybody and uh, keep the dice rolling.